Welcome everyone. My name is Yehuda Sarna. I serve as the University Chaplain of NYU, New York University, and as the Director of the Bronfen Center for Jewish Student Life at NYU. We're here for a very, very important evening. Now, if I were to have a serious conversation about global responsibility, I would not choose any other background music <laughs> than Vampire Weekend. That's the name of the band in Washington Square Park. This will be, ladies and gentlemen, a very memorable evening. I want to thank, <laughs> I want to thank our panelists for being here. The moderator, Rebecca Blumenstein, is the deputy editor-in-chief of the Wall Street Journal. Rabbi Sachs, member of the House of Lords, Renner Professor here at New York University. And uh, Mr. David Miliband, President and CEO of the International Rescue Committee. Thank you very much for being here. Good evening, everyone. I think we can safely now say that we have spirited elections going on in both of our countries. <laughs> uh, we will speak loudly, and, um, and uh, for those of you watching uh, this on podcast, there's a Bernie Sanders uh, uh, rally slash concert going on outside, so a perfect setting for this discussion. Um, I wanted to, to start off by taking us really to, to Europe and uh, what's happening more broadly with the refugee crisis. All over the past year, uh, pictures of the refugee crisis have, uh, between pictures of the election, really dominated the front pages of our paper and many papers um, across the country. Um, Rabbi Sachs, let me start with you. What sort of, how far should countries go, do you think, in terms of providing support to the refugees when we're seeing a situation of such unprecedented scale? I think the issue of scale is, is serious. But I think every single humanitarian gesture lights a candle of hope in a very dark world. And the countries, historically, that have proved most open are also the countries that have gone on to, um, to economic success. Uh, openness is just good for a culture. And therefore, uh, it seems to me it was terribly important when this debate was happening just to tell people how much Britain has gained from all the refugees it took at various times, Jewish, uh, Irish, and so on. And of course, the United States. What? Uh-huh. <laughs> Sorry, I, 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 I never got over that one occasion when somebody at the back said, speak up, I can't hear. And somebody in the front row said, I can. Would you like to change places with me? <laughs> But you know, a country like a home is warmer when you open the doors. And somehow, the record of openness to refugees is something that adds to the moral stature of a nation and that future generations never forget. Mr. Miliband, you have worked as head of the International Rescue Committee since 2013. Could you uh, describe, uh, since, since we have not seen this firsthand as, as uh, the Europeans have, the scale of the refugee crisis uh, historically compared to after World War II, for example? Yeah, I'm very happy to do that, but I have to do two other things first. Uh, first of all, in coordination with the organizer, would it help if we stood up? Ah. Rabbi Sachs, are you happy to happy. maybe yeah, yeah, we do. perch a bit? Um, secondly, I, I do want to say that it is an extraordinary privilege for me uh, to be on a panel here with Professor Lord Sachs. Uh, I've had the great good fortune uh, to have been able to talk, learn from Professor Lord Sachs over the last 20 years, and the insights that he always offers uh, have always enriched my thinking, and the chance to be able to share a platform with him is really something special, and I, I, my, my greatest vow tonight is to make sure that he does twice as much talking as I do, because I think you'll get at least twice as much out of listening to him uh, than to me. But very uh, briefly, in respect of the dimensions of the refugee crisis, um, the cold facts are that 20 million people uh, last year were fleeing for their lives as refugees. That means they crossed national borders as a result of violence. And 40 million people were displaced from their homes inside their own countries. They're called internally displaced people. That means one in every 120 people on the planet is a refugee or an internally displaced person. And I think it's very important to understand why Syria has become 
such a powerful symbol of that refugee crisis. Syria was a country of 23 million people. Syria was a country of 23 million people before the crisis began in 2011. Five million Syrians are now refugees, uh, about four million of them in the neighboring states of Lebanon, which has one and a quarter million refugees, Jordan, which has about 600,000 refugees, Turkey, which has about two million refugees, and Iraq, which has about 250,000. So five million Syrians are refugees, and seven million Syrians are internally displaced. That means they are, they've fled their own homes and their own communities and are living within uh, Syria. And so what you're seeing in Europe is the tip of the iceberg, uh, really. About half of the refugees arriving in Europe are from Syria, maybe 5%. Um, but then there are refugees from Afghanistan, about 20%. Uh, Eritrea, about 8%. Somalia, uh, Iraq, other uh, lower numbers. And so I think the important point uh, to make here is that this is a global problem, not just a European problem. Its roots are complex, and the responsibilities for addressing it cannot simply lie on those countries who are neighboring states that are consumed by violence. So my follow-up question to that um, is, should America be doing more? Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's slightly odd that we've got two Englishmen in New York here. Um, <laughs> we promise we won't sing tonight, but the... Uh, um, America has an extraordinary history of not just welcoming refugees. I mean, the word refuge uh, is absolutely written into the DNA of so many Americans. Uh, but also, America has a history of leadership in the international development sphere. And I can only report to you that today, America's role as the primary main home for people who are fleeing from violence, that that role has been supplanted in numbers terms, but also, frankly, in psychological terms, if you talk to the refugees, by, ironically, in some ways, Germany. Uh, the refugees who are fleeing from Syria, who we meet, the International Rescue Committee has operations in Greece and in Serbia, when we meet them and ask them, where are you trying to get to? They say, well, we're trying to get to the place that we think is most open to us, and that is Germany. But there's another dimension, which is that America's historic role as the leading humanitarian aid provider has now been supplanted by the European Union. Now, the European Union is 28 countries, so it's not comparing one country with another, but Amer America's humanitarian aid budget is now less than the European humanitarian aid budget. And so I think that it's reasonable to say that if America wants to continue its leadership, both on refugee resettlement and on international humanitarian aid, it's going to need to up its game. And in the course of the evening, we can talk about how. Rabbi Sachs, did Jews have a special uh, obligation here? We're nearing uh, Passover. The story of Pesach tells us of the Jewish exodus from Egypt. Um, is there a special obligation um, in this season to think about the special role that Jews should play in addressing this crisis? It's an incredibly deep element in our psyche. You begin Seder service by saying this is the bread of affliction our forefathers ate in the land of Egypt. It was the bread they ate as they were leaving as refugees. And it seems to me that, that, that this is part of our history, our memory, and indeed not just part of our history and memory. David's mother came to Britain as a refugee. My father came to Britain as a refugee. It's something we remember very much, and it's part of our history throughout the ages. We also know, I think, that the Jewish experience has been that all the people who were taken as refugees here in the States and in, in Britain, I'm thinking about the children rescued uh, from Nazi Germany in kinder transport, made it their life's work to give back to the country that had given them freedom. And uh, we heard just now about, um, from, from uh, Mrs. Rubin, about, about the sense of gratitude. And that is also important. Don't forget, America taught all of us, taught the world, what I, I think is at the heart of Judaism as well, that a free society is a moral achievement. It's not just a political one. A free society has to be one that recognizes our common humanity, 
whatever the differences of color, culture, or creed. And therefore, it seems to me that uh, it's part of our mission as Jews to try and do this, and it's part of the American mission, which has that very similar story. And David's quite right. I mean, it was that openness that made America feel and be regarded by the world as having a sense of mission that lifted the game of all of us. And when America, a key player, pulls back from the arena, there's a real vacuum, and it's troubling. And uh, so it's, it's just um, something we feel very strongly. Uh, Mr. Miliband, uh, what, is your, what is your reaction to the backlash we're seeing? Even in Germany now, the, the big political story is whether Angela Merkel will survive her, commit, her commitment um, and the political risks that she's enduring. We, we are seeing the reality of uh, violent incidents, worries about uh, jihadis, even uh, uh, the fact that one of the Paris bombers mixed in with the, the migrants. There's a, there is, um, and, and certainly in this country, there's been a, a backlash against uh, immigration and refugees. What is your answer to people who are concerned about the real risks? Well, first of all, I think it is worth pausing for a moment on the German story, and I don't want to sound frivolous, but um, while Mrs. Merkel has suffered a precipitate drop in her popularity rating, her current 48% approval rating is something that many politicians, and dare I say it, ex-politicians, would also give their uh, right arm for. So um, I, I think that rumors of the demise of the Merkel phenomenon, uh, I would argue, should be taken with a very large pinch of salt. I mean, I was in Germany, I actually saw her in February. Um, it's, it's striking that in the March regional elections, uh, her party lost, but it was uh, people in her own party who were opposing her who lost, and the parties who won uh, from the Green Party and elsewhere were those who were actually supporting her. And that really is the clue to the main answer I want to give you, which is that it strikes me that not just in the United States, but also across Europe, and frankly, I see it in Africa as well, where we do a lot of work and I travel. Um, the re refugee froze don't produce a backlash only in one direction. They produce a polarization. And some people become very opposed, but others, whether because of their own history or because of their own ideas, become passionately supportive. And so for us as, a, uh, as an organization that's both a humanitarian aid organization and a refugee resettlement organization, We've had unprecedented levels of political opposition to refugee resettlement, but also unprecedented levels of support, both volunteers and donors, in the last year. And so I think that the, the frame to have in mind is one of polarization, political polarization. And that's sad, because obviously in a country like the United States, this has always been a bipartisan process, not a, not a partisan one. Uh, but in respect of security, I feel very strongly that it's incumbent on people like me to say that it's completely reasonable to take security concerns seriously. It's very important to do so, but it's important to deal in fact, not in fantasy. And the fact is that 750,000 people have been admitted to the US as refugees since 2001, since 9-11. Five of them have been arrested for terrorist-related offenses. Four of those offenses were in respect of terrorism outside the United States, not in the United States. And in all five cases, your security and other services worked well. And so I think that uh, the right thing to say is, of course, vigilance is important. Of course, security is important. But America, because of the blessings of its geography, is in a completely different position as regards security concerns than Europe, which has the thousands of miles of open borders, uh, the external borders of the European Union, which, which pose a very different security challenge uh, than the US, which is separated by thousands of miles. It's also worth noting, just go back 100 years and read the uh, press and the political speeches being made 100 years ago about Jewish immigration from Eastern Europe in the United States and in Britain. There really was a backlash, but at the end of the day, it didn't translate into any insoluble problem, and it's something that countries work through over time. So this is not unprecedented, but it's not an insoluble problem. How concerned are you about, and I want to ask you about the Brexit vote later, but just the, the state of our um, international system um, and a certain sense of, of a weakening of resolve to help combat ISIS and some of the growing problems of extremism. 
Do you see the United Nations, um, NATO, obviously, the European Union? Um, how concerned are you, uh, Rabbi Sachs, about, about a, a weakening, in a sense, of the international system that's, that's prevailed for the past few decades? It seems to me that there's a reaction of fear, which always turns countries and cultures inward. And it's part of the responsibility of leadership to counter that. Um, I tried, you know, not exactly in this pr precise way, but I could see our community was turning inward as it was getting a little more vulnerable and sensitive to heightened anti-Semitism. And I remember saying to our students, you know, you're going to hit a lot of anti-Semitism. We are going to be there standing with you. Whenever you need me, I'll be there. And now we'll go out and help Muslims fight Islamophobia. You have to turn people outward at the point when they're turning inward, because the turning inward makes the problem so much worse. And it's actually an abdication of responsible leadership. Can't put it better than that. I mean, um, let me offer a slightly um, uh, a perspective on the international scene, because I think the moral case and the political case that Professor Lord Sachs has made is, is outstandingly important. And it's this, that the international system is certainly more divided than at any time since the end of the Cold War. And in some ways, the international system is weaker than it was during the Cold War. And it's worth just pausing and asking oneself, well, how can that be? The, the Cold War was the ultimate division of the world into two halves. But what strikes me, if you look at the history of the Cold War period, it was organized division. What's striking about international relations in many parts of the world, in the modern world, is that there is disorganized fragmentation. And that's what makes the international political system weak. Now, the important point is not really a historical analogy. It's an understanding of the, in some ways, precipitous decline of some of the norms and institutions that uphold the international system and uphold the values on which it's based. And let me just give you a very uh, um, simple example. I mean, aid workers are more threatened today by random violence than ever before. And frankly, civilians uh, and civilian rights in warfare are more threatened than at any time, certainly for the last 25 years. And the rights of civilians in war, it sounds in a way appalling to say that there's a difference between a, a war conducted by rules and a war without rules, a war with law and a war without law. So it almost sounds like a, a quaint British thing of uh, the way you should do this. But frankly, a war without law means that a government is able to bomb, barrel bomb in the case of President Assad, barrel bomb its own cities to hell without accountability and without... Um, uh, without stop. And that's why I talk about the war in Syria being a war without law. And if the post-war settlement, the post-1945 international settlement was about anything, it was upholding international law. And the collapse of international humanitarian law and in some ways international law more generally inside Syria, it, it, I think behooves us to recognize the reality that the international political system is weaker and more divided than for a very long time. Yeah. I, Henry Kissinger, in his recent book, World Order, raises the question, he says, rightly, that the international system that we have had dates back not to 1948, but 1648, to the Treaty of Westphalia, built on the doctrine of nation states, national sovereignty, and balance of power. It's very interesting that uh, Benedict Anderson, in his book, Imagine Communities, attributes the rise of nation-states to the technology of national newspapers. Something that simple. United people within a geographical area in a way they hadn't been before. We are now living at an age of global communication, and ISIS and Al-Qaeda are the number one uh, users of YouTube and Facebook technology. And all of a sudden, our communication no longer squares with our political system. So it is wholly open to question whether this international order that we've lived in for three and a half centuries 
is going to, or four and a half centuries, is going to continue. And this needs wisdom, courage, and political leadership of the highest order. And I really think now is the time to strengthen the bonds of international engagement and to put national differences aside because the risks are very high and the stakes are very high indeed. Rabbi, you write in your um, last book, Not in God's Name, that uh, an era of secularization that's occurred over the past four centuries is really ending and that to fight some of the religious extremists, we have to embrace religion. Um, could you could you expound on that? I know that I know that um, some of the, the 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 roots of this book actually came from a moment you had here in New York after 9/11, as you began to explore some of the roots of the conflicts. Yeah, I'll, t I'll tell you there were two moments that that had a huge impact on me. Number one was standing together with George Carey, the Archbishop of Canterbury, the Chief Rabbi of Israel, gurus from India, imams from throughout the Middle East, at Ground Zero, shortly, not a couple of months after 9-11. After, after and we were praying together, and the, the sense of fraternity and togetherness was intense. And as I looked from these leaders of the world faiths coming together in prayer, to the wreckage and ruins of 9-11, it suddenly became absolutely clear to me that this was going to be the fundamental choice in the 21st century. Which way was religion going to go? Was it going to destroy or to mend? Was it gonna harm or was it gonna heal? I said, religion is like fire and it warms, but it also burns and we are the guardians of the flame. For four centuries, the West has gone through a period of secularization, one after the other. 17th century, secularization of knowledge and the rise of science. 18th century, secularization of power, the secular nation state. 19th century, the secularization of culture as museums and art galleries began to take the place of churches and synagogues. 20th, 20th century, secularization of morality. And people thought, it's linear. We're, we're, we're going to do that and there'll be no end to the secularization. They didn't realize that there are certain impulses within each of us that tend towards religion, come what may. I've, I said that there are three questions any reflective human being will ask sometime in their lives. Who am I? Why am I here? And how then shall I live? And those are questions that cannot be answered by science, technology, the market economy or the liberal democratic state. That was number one. So I knew religion was gonna get stronger, if only for the fact that religious families have more children than secular families do. So even though if they don't convert anyone, they're gonna be a lot more religious people around. And the other one was actually Prime Minister Tony Blair. Prime Minister Tony Blair was a very religious man whose press officer refused to let him talk about religion. Every time they asked him about his religion, Alastair Campbell would interrupt and say, we don't do God. And uh, when he, he was no longer prime minister, I phoned him up. I said, what do you call an ex-prime minister? He said, without hesitation, a has-been, entirely fallacious, but... Uh, it was one of those moments. And I said, now you're no longer prime minister. You can talk about God. You can do God. There's no Alistair Campbell saying no. And I did the first television interview with Tony Blair after he was prime minister. And it was fascinating because I asked him, was there a time as prime minister where the fact that you were a religious individual actually made a difference? And he said, yes, in the Northern Ireland peace process. Because everyone else had seen religion as the problem. I realized, he said, that it could be part of the solution. Just being a religious individual, he was a, at the time a Protestant, he, uh, Sherry, his wife was a Catholic, so he had kind of Northern Ireland at home anyway. So, uh, and it was, that, it was that ability to bring his religious understanding to bear so that both sides thought they, he, he was listening to them. And I often feel, you know, there was a, a study just now, a few weeks ago, published on the uh, Oslo peace process, 
which came to the conclusion that every aspect of the Palestinian-Israeli conflict was dealt with except one, the religious dimension. Now, how is it possible that you're going to do a peace process in the Middle East without dealing with religion? So I think when you continue to ignore religion, you are absolutely in denial about one of the fundamental fuel, fuel, things fueling the conflict. And therefore, if religion is going to be part of the problem, we must make it part of the solution. Mr. Miliband, you gave a speech in December where you spoke about how the fight against international terrorism could be conducted in a way that undermines rather than reinforces the argument of violent jihadists. Do you, do you agree that, that religion needs to be embraced as part of the discussion? Oh, my. Um... We're getting close to confession time here, I think. Um, Jonathan, for 20 years, has been extremely tolerant and embracing of my lack of religious, never mind fervor, but even education or followership. Uh, one of the reasons I enjoy listening to him is that he's so tolerant of my secularism. So it is interesting, and it's ironic that I come from a country, I'm a citizen of a country that has an established church, but where my lack of religiosity played absolutely no role in any election or any public post that I've ever held. Whereas this country, of course, which Jonathan said this in a podcast actually earlier, this country which treasures the separation of church and state, uh, obviously, the re religious leanings of um, leading politicians, never mind of the wider populace, are a much greater part of the uh, of the discourse. Um, so, in a way, I'm in a very bad position to answer your uh, question, but uh, I can only offer a uh, perspective. And I do think, I've never heard Jonathan use the phrase before, religion, you said religion, warm, but religion can burn. And that is a very, very potent phrase. Jonathan's book, In God's Name, is an extraordinary document, really. I, I now, I don't only read it, I give it away as uh, birthday presents. And uh, the, the heart of the book is this, is the dualism that exists, not just in um, uh, the Bible and the work that he's done to, to show how, but also in, in so many parts of um, national and international life and the, the turning of those dualisms into uh, something that, that is constructive rather than destructive is important. So the short answer to your question is can... Re religion is either going to be part of the problem or it's going to be part of the solution. And the essential uh, role, I think, of religious leaders is to make it part of the solution rather than part of the problem. And those of us who are neither religious leaders nor religious adherents, I think, is to uh, support and to engage. And just as I, I made a speech in London on Monday and I said that the fight against anti-Semitism was not one that was only for Jews to fight, it was for all to fight, whether they're of any religion and none. So the struggle uh, for those who do have religious faith and want to bend it towards being part of the solution rather than part of the problem is not the, it's not just something that Muslims have to do within the Muslim faith or Jews have to do within the Jewish faith or Christians have to do within the Christian faith. I think it's something that requires people to reach across boundaries of religion, but also across boundaries between secularists and, and those who are religious. I, I, I want to add, I, I don't think uh, that we fully acknowledged that religions are facing every bit as much of a challenge as nation states are. Because most people at most times in human history have lived surrounded by people who in religion and culture were pretty much like them. And today, you know, you walk down uh, any main street in New York or any capital city of Europe, you are going to meet more religious and ethnic diversity in 10 minutes than an 18th century anthropologist would meet in an entire lifetime. Can we cope with difference? And there's good news and bad news about religion. Religion from ligare means to bind together. So religion turns a lot of individual eyes into a collective we. But religion at the same time defines that we against 
the you against the them, the people on the other side, the people not like us. And religions, especially, I'm afraid I have to admit, monotheisms. Polytheism is pretty tolerant in comparison with monotheisms. Uh, the monotheisms have not been very good at relating to the other, the infidel, the unsaved, the unredeemed, the person who stands outside my circle of redemption. And therefore, there's a real challenge. Can we develop religious leadership for a 21st century, for a global age, in which I feel enriched and not threatened by someone whose faith is different from mine. And we are going to have to give that a lead. I have to say here in this building in NYU, the, uh, where I think more than 50 faiths are represented somewhere in this, in this center, and where the Ofmeni Institute and Bridges, the project bringing Jews and Muslims together in social action, NYU has been a role model. But it does seem to me that the world's religions are going to have to think themselves out of this narrow box of us versus them, the saved versus the damned. Rabbi, could you get a bit more into your uh, findings in the book? You, you delved into the, into the roots of the three major religions and um, rather boldly uh, tried to, tried to um, get to the bottom of the conflicts that are often cited. Um, and, and could you share your conclusions? I mean, Judaism, Islam, Christianity. I know this is a very complicated topic, but you emerged from this book a little more optimistic than, than many <laughs> of us feel. Um, well, I, I did point out that the way Jews, Christians, and Muslims define themselves is in terms of sibling rivalry. And um, the book of Genesis, which is shared property for Jews and Christians, and in some rough sense also part of Islam, is all about sibling rivalry. Cain and Abel, Isaac and Ishmael, Jacob and Esau, Joseph and his brothers. And according to many thinkers, great thinkers, including Sigmund Freud, but most notably René Girard, the French literary scholar, sibling rivalry has been throughout history the primary driver of violence. So I tried to say, um, and David and I both come from families where we have brothers, so we have to wrestle with some of these issues sometimes. I always have this terrible trouble because I'm one of four brothers, a family of four boys. So when it comes to Pesach, to the Seder service, and you got the four boys, one wise, one wicked, one simple, and one... Are you the... Are you the I always got so... I, I got so upset by that, I have to say, you know, because I, I did not want to think of brothers as anything other than wise, which made me the dumb one. Happy to, quite happy to live that role. So is of human nature. But what I did point out is if we read the Bible very carefully we probe just a little beneath the surface, we'll see that this is not an eternal curse of humankind. And I once, I remember saying, look at those four stories and ignore everything except the final scene in each case. Cain and Abel, Abel lies dead. Isaac and Ishmael, they're standing together at Abraham's grave. Jacob and Esau, they meet, they embrace, and they go their separate ways. Joseph and his brothers, forgiveness and reconciliation. So there's an upward curve, which takes us to the beginning of Exodus. Three siblings, Moses, Aaron, Miriam, leading together. So I see the Bible is telling us on the surface a story of conflict, which has played out between Jews and Christians, Jews and Muslims, Christians and Muslims, ages of crusades, expulsions, and all the rest. But if you really peer beneath the surface, the Bible is saying you can transcend this and move from Genesis to Exodus, which is the story of redemption. The other thing I would say, because to my mind, it's the perfect story about refugees and openness. When we think of the Exodus, we think, who's the hero? Moses. But then I think, who's the villain? Pharaoh. 
And who is it that rescues Moses? Pharaoh's daughter. So this is just telling you that actually um, you can, one generation down, just by speaking to people's humanitarian instincts. It is Pharaoh's daughter who recognizes this is a Hebrew child and I'm going to rescue it and adopt it. And out of that came the great drama of redemption. And I think that's a lovely story to tell about letting a stranger into your life, caring for them, and then letting them lead in their own way. We seem to be seeing an ever-escalating series of uh, terrorist attacks, um, but both of you have actually pointed out that Muslims uh, form the majority of the victims of Islamic violence. Um, are, are, Mr. Miliband, are you, uh, in your view, are, are leaders around the world working closely enough with Muslims? Is the, is the cooperation what it can and should be on both sides? I think that um, the place for me to start to answer that question is to say I lead an organization that's got 11,000 employees and 10,000 day workers, uh, really. We were set up by Albert Einstein to rescue Jews from Europe, and today, 80 years later, we have the majority of our work, or probably 45% of our work, 40 to 45% of our work in Muslim-majority countries. Uh, that means that in those countries, in Syria, where there are 2,000 people working for the IRC today, uh, they're all Syrians. And there'll be different parts of Syrian society. Um, but I, I, my, my answer to your question is very colored by the makeup of the organization that I lead and the people who we serve. And uh, I think the, uh, the second thing I would say is that... Um, in those Muslim-majority countries, we are dealing with the consequences of arguments between different Muslims. Uh, the uh, fight that's going on inside Syria started as a fight between people and their government. Uh, it became a fight between different confessional groups. It was then layered with a fight between different regional actors, and only at the later stage did it become a geopolitical, global political um, argument in which one side, Russia, was very engaged and in which the West was very disengaged. Um, in Afghanistan, um, similarly, since the 1980s, we've been there. And so I think that uh, the, it's important not to lay everything at the door of somehow a divide between Muslim communities and the rest. There are, there are divides within the Islamic world or Islamic worlds that I think are very important to respect and to understand. And one of my reflections is that some of the fear and some of the disinterest, frankly, that exists in respect to the Syria crisis emanates from a lack of understanding, not just of the history of Islam, but of its current dispositions, uh, arguments, uh, and arguments. And so maybe that's the way to, to frame the answer to your question, which is that there is a huge debate to be had within the Islamic world about how it's going to reconcile itself and its different uh, denominations to modernity. And that's a, a debate that other religions have had and in some ways continue to have. Uh, and it goes to the heart of the question that Jonathan Sachs ha has raised, which is whether or not a stranger, technical term of being someone who's of a different faith than you, uh, is an enemy or a potential friend. And so I think that's the way I would understand the, or, or give some color to the, to the crisis that we're facing. I'll, I'll never forget that, you know, when we did a memo uh, memorial pla uh, sculpture, really, for uh, kinder transport, there was one 80-year-old lady who had come over to Liverpool Street Station on kinder transport and spoke on that occasion and she spoke about this sense of wonder as slowly she realized that in England, a policeman could be a friend. It was just a wonderful moment when she suddenly realized this is a different kind of country and a different kind of culture. And it is those countries that really are the ones that go on to be economic and political successes. But, sorry, sorry. But it, it does seem to me 
that um, although there have been the most horrendous terrorist attacks in Europe, the fact is that terror aims at terrifying. And it is the fundamental resistant, resilience of European societies that just show that terror has achieved absolutely nothing whatsoever. Meanwhile, ISIS is Muslim, murdering fellow Muslims at a huge rate. And a recent poll that came out just a day or two ago showed that ISIS is now losing the support of young Muslims throughout the Middle East. I mean, they are completely now disillusioned because it, it has achieved so little and done so much harm to the world of Islam. So I think you, it's a matter of holding firm, having strong nerves, refusing to be terrified. And it is also a matter of working at good relations across the faiths within each individual country. When London had its suicide bombings on the 7th of July 2005, within 24 hours, the then Home Secretary had the leaders of all the faiths together in his office because he was worried that there would be a backlash and that there would be violence in a lot of Midlands towns where there are actually a lot of Muslims. Now, I said to him, I don't think you realize that every one of us around the table, we are all close personal friends. We had really worked at those relationships beforehand. And when they were put to the test, they were found absolutely strong and there was not a single incidence of anti-Muslim violence in the wake of 7-7-2005. Before I open it up for questions, I can't, um, I can't uh, not ask about uh, both your election in the UK and our election here. Uh, Mr. Miliband, you gave a speech yesterday in which you called uh, uh, those who support Brexit, uh, that Brexit would be tantamount to political arson. Could you, could you expound on that and why you think Brexit is so threatening? How long have you got? Uh, the, uh, um, I should say that I was making this speech in a personal capacity, not in my capacity as the CEO of the International Rescue Committee. Um, but uh, maybe I can just link to that question uh, with a, uh, a sort of three-point turn. Because I, I, I just want to cap off what Jonathan said with the following point. It seems to me that uh, there are many people who will buy into the idea that it's right to make a success of their local multi-faith, multicultural community, but they will draw the line at trying to remedy ills and difficulties that exist a long way away. And although our conversation today has obscured in a way the distinction, I think it's worth dwelling on it. Because it, what I see is um, a community around me in the US that is obviously a multi-faith community, uh, a multicultural community of, of, of many stripes and colors. Uh, but I, and, I, and I see pride in that. But I also see a reticence when it comes to international engagement. And one of the things that's uh, striking about our position as the International Rescue Committee is obviously we, we're resettling people around the United States and despite the refugees and despite the toxicity of the, of the politics, when I ask our directors in Dallas or San Diego or Boise, Idaho, when you resettle a Syrian refugee in a community, what's the reaction of the neighbors? And what they say is that that core American value that you go and you meet your neighbor, you engage with your neighbor, you support your neighbor, because that's a person that comes through very, very strongly. But those same people who are responding on a personal level in a very generous and open way, when it comes to thinking what's the international responsibility of the United States, they're much more, you could say, cautious, or you could say humble, or you could say modest, or you could say um, negative. And it seems to me that it's worth drawing out that point, because this moment in human history is one of extraordinary and unprecedented levels, levels of global interconnection. And we cannot manage this interconnected world of ours in a secure, sustainable, and stable way if we only confine our sense of responsibility to our own communities or our own nation states. And I said to Jonathan before, the, uh, before we started that my great fear at the moment is that no one's looking after the global commons. Who's looking after the global commons of security, health, trade, infrastructure, and even morality? 
And that strikes me as being a really important challenge that those of us who do bridge the divide between local action and international action have to think about very seriously. And that's a rather um, hackneyed way, maybe, of getting to your question about Brexit, was it, but it goes to the heart of that question. Essentially, people in Britain are saying, well, hang on, let's fix our own problems before we go and try and fix other people's problems. And my point yesterday is, in the modern world, you can't fix your own problems by declaring independence from the rest of the world. The sharing of sovereignty and of responsibility for a country of 60 million people is an essential fact of life. And that was the argument that I was uh, making. I, I reflected to you, Rebecca, beforehand that the danger is that instead of having an argument about that, those of us who are making uh, the um, case for Britain to remain in Europe are not confronted with a with an opposing argument, we're confronted with the point, well, you, what right have you got to say that because you don't live here? And that worried me in, uh, yesterday, but the, uh, the argument is there to be joined over the next eight weeks until the 23rd of June. And um, what I said yesterday was that Britain has always been a firefighter in the international system. Uh, for three or four hundred years, we've sought to check the rise of continental powers, sometimes successfully, sometimes unsuccessfully. Uh, we have, as a country, always uh, sought to check the abuse of power. And in the international system, that role of checking the abuse of power doesn't fall to one country, it falls to coalitions of countries. And I think it's very important that we, we as the UK, continue that firefighting role in alliance with others and don't fall for the fantasies of, of arson, which I think um, a vote to leave the EU would represent. Rabbi Sachs, do you see parallels between the debates um, taking place in the UK and in the US? And are you concerned by, I guess, the responsibility of rhetoric and some of what you're, some of what you're hearing? I don't suppose I, you want to give a specific endorsement, so. <laughs> no, uh, David and I had this perfect friendship because I love the politics to him and he left the religion to me. So I'm, not, I'm really not gonna get engaged in that kind of political argument either in relation to Britain and Europe or in relation to America. But there is something I'm, I've noticed, which is if you notice that on the internet, people are really quite rude. It is called the disinhibition effect. When you're not actually facing the person you're talking about, you could be very rude indeed, and this is really, really shocking. So it becomes really not unimportant for responsible public figures not to fall into that trap, to try and lift public discourse, to speak to the better angels of our nature, and even, you know, to be not ungenerous to their political opponents. That way, politics evokes what unites us, not just what divides us, because what unites us is our commitment to peaceful transition of power, the democratic mandate, the fact that every single voter and every individual matters. These are what unites us in the free countries of the West is so much greater than what divides us. So it does seem to me that uh, I love your American presidential election. It's really fun. I've, I've been watching it as a kind of soap opera on television or a running comedy show. It's terrific. It's, you know, you've got some real mega stars here. Uh, but the fact is, I would say it is not unimportant for political leaders to raise the level of political discourse so as to lift us and not, as it were, to be lulled into this incivility of the internet. Can I just ask Jonathan a question on that? Because I, and, and this is a question as an ex-politician who spent last night at a political gathering. And at that gathering were a large number of young members of parliament. And what they said to, what they said to me, Jonathan, was really striking. They said, look, we can behave in a civil way, but we get absolutely hammered on social media and elsewhere in the most vicious way, in precisely the way that you've described. Did you call it the disinhibition you know, effect? Yeah. And w the question I've got is, what do we say to those members of parliament who are saying, I'm 35 years old, I'm 40 years old, I'm making my way in politics, 
and I'm getting absolutely hammered, and I really don't like it. I've got people telling, putting on social media that others should come around to my house, that, 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 that I'm, they're, they're publishing my address, they're inviting people to invade my office. Public life does depend on the civility of those in public life. But public life also depends on those in public life not being vilified for being in public life. And I, I think that, so the question is, what, are the, what can those who are not in political life do to protect the public sphere and to ensure that people who do have opinions and are ready to offer them in a, in, a, in a sane and in a civilized way don't get just totally dispirited and, frankly, feel that they can't live their lives as politicians, which I think is a serious danger in, in, in modern democracy. Uh, I, I would not leave political debate to the, uh, what's it called? Vampire weekend. I mean, the vampire tendency probably exists in all of us. But the truth is, any politician who stands above the fray, who refuses to read the, the emails that get hurled at him, who insists that I am going to stick by my standards, um, is going to be the political beneficiary. Today, when anyone can put anything on the internet, the unique selling proposition goes to a website, and I, I hope I'm not doing uh, free advertising, but a website like the BBC website, which on most subjects is regarded as balanced and reputable, and you, any, any situation where there's a lot of, of mudslinging and a lot of uh, incivility, somebody who stands above the fray is going to be rewarded. And I have to tell you, David, that if you were to read the things said about Abraham Lincoln in his lifetime, you will see he had to put up. If you can't the stand mud. the heat, get out of the kitchen. That's the... Uh... No, I'm just saying, you stay true to your principles. I remember once an ex-foreign uh, secretary of the State of Israel, Abba Iban, returning to his alma mater, Cambridge University. And he began his speech with the following sentence. It is wonderful to be back at Cambridge University where I learned the truth, honesty, and integrity that have been such a disadvantage to me in my political career. <laughs> but the truth is that truth, honesty, and integrity, a refusal to be baited, a refusal to descend to the level of your critics is going to stand out, and in the end, people aren't fools. They know that those who shout loudest have the worst arguments, and it is those who remain calm who are the people we will trust with our future. I'd like to open it up to a couple of questions. Thank you for much, so much for coming out tonight. This was wonderful to hear everybody um, and your thoughts on the refugee crisis. My question is specifically for Mr. Miliband. Towards the beginning of our session tonight, you spoke about um, some of the concerns, security concerns having to do with refugees, unfortunately. And I was wondering if you could go into a little more detail about the security concerns and then also about policies that on the one hand address those concerns, but on the other hand let in the people who are not a security concern. Right, sure. First of all, it's harder to get into the U.S. as a refugee than by any other route. You have to go through 18 to 24 months of biometric testing, interviews, investigation. And uh, it's a very tough process in which the burden of proof lies on the refugee, not on the state. So the burden of proof is on the refugee to prove to the U.S. authorities that they can be a responsible, patriotic, safe, safe resident and then citizen. Uh, it does not lie on the state to disprove the refugee claim. There's no right of a refugee to come to the US. Uh, there's a burden of proof on uh, them. And so I, I think that the reassurance I can give you is that you have a system that is as close to watertight as it's possible to get uh, because uh, you're able to have a very simple pipeline of people. They're referred from different parts of the world, uh, 12 to 15 different government agencies. It's not a public figure, so we, we, we estimate 12 to 15 pub, uh, government agencies are involved in the vetting process. 
and you couldn't have a stronger contrast with the million people who arrived on the shores of Europe uh, over the last year, uh, where the necessary registration, screening, vetting, etc., didn't take place. And so I think it's very important to, to recognize that Europe's playing catch-up, but the US is in a much stronger uh, position, and hopefully the European catch-up will uh, gain speed and gain uh, traction. But I think it is important to say to a US audience that you've um, got a, a system that's proved itself to be practical as well as moral. Uh, and that's something I think that successive Homeland Security Secretaries and others have supported and should give you confidence that doing the right thing is not the route to ending up doing the wrong thing. I just wanted to say, as we're going to go to the next question, thank you to the high school students from Trinity High School who are joining us tonight. Thank you to the students in my multi-faith class who are here tonight. And to particularly the students who organized refugee, Syrian Refugee Awareness Week. Hi, sorry. This is a question that I think um, really um, is, I guess, in America, um, one in 30 um, American children are homeless, and over 10% of the homeless population in America are veterans. And I'm just wondering what, I know that this is something that gets brought up fairly often when addressing the Syrian refugee crisis, and, you know, in terms of, you know, America, I guess, helping, you know, the ones who are in their country and how to address giving aid both to people who are in the country and opening the doors and where the balance is in that. Yeah, I mean, obviously there's a difference. You have to help the people in your country. You don't have to help the people outside your country. There's a kind of differential obligation between what we owe as a citizenry to our fellow citizens and what we owe to people from the outside who are seeking refuge and a shelter. So it is a difficult equation, but it isn't really an either or. You know, we, it, it, it's not a matter of doing this will stop us doing that because really there are different things that have to be done to help the homeless here from, from the refugees. But uh, clearly that's, that's the kind of difference. There's a, a moral obligation, a must, about caring for your own citizens, and a may and a should and an ought to about refugees, which is just less imperative, but not unimportant. My reflection on that would be that um, without being a an expert on your Veterans Administration, uh, it strikes me that many of the problems of the Veterans Administration are not the lack of money, but are the way in which is, that money has been administered. And so to rather back up um, Jonathan Sachs's point, uh, money for refugees is not money being taken away from veterans. 0.013 of global gross domestic product goes on humanitarian help. And I think it's very, very important uh, to say that um, in the US, 0.21% of, of US national income goes on overseas development, on, inter on uh, international aid. So uh, whatever strain and stress exists in domestic social services is not born of largesse towards uh, the world's poor. Hi. Um, first, I want to thank you both for your brave leadership and, and um, really bringing these conversations forward both to us locally here and on a broader scale internationally. Um, and um, Rabbi Sachs, I wanna also thank you for all that you teach um, personally that, um, so I was raised a Christian and I was very much taught um, to you know, love one another is a huge thing in Christianity and one of your teachings um, about how much harder it is um, to uh, love and respect the stranger in thy gates, um, and, and what a powerful mitzvah that is, um, is something that has been incredibly powerful in my coming to identify with Judaism. Um, and unfortunately, at the same time, while I hear very powerful messages like that from, from leaders like you, um, 
increasingly, especially when I see in the Orthodox world, that there is a, uh, a lot of rhetoric where um, we are spending a lot more time burning each other. The conversation is YCT versus YU. It's uh, women or not women or, uh, or you know, laning, et cetera, or, or um, all the different contentious points where people are, are bickering and, and being very, um, very callous towards each other. Um, and so my question is, um, how do we, especially those of us who aren't leaders or rabbis, how do we broaden that conversation within the religious world so that our tradition does more warming than burning? <laughs> Elaine and I, when I was chief rabbi, or rather when I was married to the chief rabbits, and Elaine and I, <laughs> <coughs> Elaine and I used to give dinner parties because it was kind of the thing we had to do. And we usually had a guest of honor who was a politician, a religious leader who wasn't Jewish. But all the other guests were Jewish. Whenever we had a non-Jewish guest of honor, all the Jewish guests were polite to one another. <laughs> Whenever there wasn't, we were as rude as can be to one another. So I suddenly realized that making space for the stranger actually helps us Jews get on so much better with one another. And it actually did work that way. Because there were times when there were a lot of tensions in British Jewry between Orthodox and non-Orthodox Jews. And at that point, and I didn't get it right all the time, I made several obvious mistakes. And I said, you know, at that time, we are going to have to establish some principles of working together across the denominations that have integrity and principle to them. And that's when I came up with two propositions. This is in, ter in terms of internal politics within the Jewish community, but they probably apply anywhere else. I said, on all matters that affect us as Jews, regardless of our religious differences, we will work together regardless of those differences. Principle two, on all matters that touch on those differences, we will agree to differ but with respect. So that meant that on a huge range of issues, like interfaith dialogue, like fighting anti-Semitism, like promoting welfare and social action, we were able to work together, orthodox, conservative, reform, liberal, all the rest, and secular. And we just did because there was a logic to it. And on the other issues, synagogue life, education, uh, schooling, we agreed to differ, but we did not allow each other to insult one another. We established protocols of civil discourse. And the end result was that just by turning outward to work on community relations and interfaith relations, we were able to sit together for actually the first time in Anglo-Jewish history, we actually sat together and everyone, because everyone saw the integrity of those two principles. And they worked in Anglo jury for, uh, you know, once we'd formulated them and they will work for any jury. So actually turning toward the outsider, turning outward does help resolve some of those internal differences. Uh, just let me say two things uh, to follow up that. One is maybe to add to something that Jonathan was far too modest to say, which is that interfaith dialogue can sound like a lot of meetings and um, quite sort of crab-like progress. But one thing, just listening to Jonathan just now, one thing occurred to me. He was called the UK's chief rabbi. And oh, he's known as the UK's chief rabbi. And in that sense, he was obviously the chief rabbi for the Jewish community, but he was also the chief rabbi or the most senior rabbi that was seen by all the non-Jews in Britain. And he became a, a really prophetic and important voice about big moral and even small p political questions. And 
or maybe in which the way, for the process by which political questions were addressed. And that in its own way was a contribution to interfaith understanding and dialogue. And I think it's important to recognize that. When the current chief rabbi went to Greece to visit refugees, he went as the UK's chief rabbi, but he established a prophetic religious voice that went beyond the Jewish community, even though his call to action was within the Jewish community. And I think, just listening to Jonathan just now, I think it's important to say that, because you're right to say that the part of his book that talks about how loving a stranger is much more difficult than loving a neighbor is really important and very challenging, but I think it's important to, to say that. Just the final uh, thing that I want to say is an utterly shameless thing I'm going to say, which is that uh, you've given an ex-politician an audience here, and obviously with this audience, I am honor-bound to invite you to become part of the International the International Rescue Committee's family. Uh, we are, are an organization that was founded in New York by Albert Einstein in 1933. Uh, we resettle refugees from around the world in New York and in New Jersey, as well as doing international humanitarian uh, work. We would love to have you as mentors for some of the refugees who we bring to these shores. We would love to establish partnerships with the businesses that you work for. And for those of you who want to become part of, become financial supporters, obviously I wouldn't be doing my job if I didn't invite you to do that as well. Uh, but it seems to me that one of my jobs as the first non-American who leads the IRC is, ironically, to deepen its roots in New York. And where better to do that than here at NYU with students who come from across New York but across uh, the world, never mind faculty and members of the community. So I hope that by visiting the IRC website or by talking to me or others, uh, you'll find a way to carry on the conversation and make a practical contribution to a cause that's obviously central not just to uh, the world's future but to New York's future. Please join me in thanking our distinguished guests for a very provocative conversation. So, uh, a few things I must tell you. Number one, on Friday from 3 to 5 p.m., there won't be Vampire Weekend in the park, but there will be uh, rally for, to raise awareness for Syrian refugees in Washington Square Park. Wanted to thank, again, our panelists and everyone who was in our audience who was very flexible with the arrangement. There is actually a light collation outside. So we're uh, deeply appreciative for all of you who have come here. Please let others know about the things that you've heard tonight. And, and as we go forward, let's internalize the sense of responsibility. Thank you very much, everyone.